It is sinful to presume upon the power of God in such a way that causes you to take unnecessary risks, make unwise decisions, or to fail to be properly prepared for a situation. And he says, lest they crush him, verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him, pressed around him to touch him. So this is now quite a different picture from the great night of healing in Capernaum on the night of uh, Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. Remember that back in chapter one. This is quite a different picture because Jesus is now being thronged by the crowd. Mark, uh, our translation says that they pressed upon him, but literally that word means that they were continually falling upon him. So the image that we have here is of Jesus being at the center of a crowd and the crowd, you know how crowds can be when they tend to get out of control maybe. And there's people at the back of the crowd that are pressing forward to get in and the people at the front are now being squished and and pressed against where they didn't want to be pressed against. And so this, we we know how mob mentality works. And this is a, a picture that is bordering on something like mob mentality. This is not, you you should remove from your mental picture what we are sometimes shown in the Sunday school book coloring pages and different things of this little nice little scene where here's Jesus and there's some people around him, he's healing people and, and maybe he's sitting on a rock or something like that and everybody's nice and calm. You should remove that from your thinking because this is something more akin to a mob. Jesus is being flocked. He's being thronged. In fact, chapter 3, verse 20, we're going to see this again, that the crowds are thronging upon him to such a degree that we're told that he and his disciples cannot even eat. That is an intrusive crowd when you are unable to even pause long enough to eat. That is an incredibly intrusive uh, crowd. We are told again in chapter 5, of the crowd and the size and the forcefulness of the crowd. We read that he went with them and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And this is painting for us again, this picture of something like when when Jesus, in other words, when he calls for the boat for his possible safety, when he calls for that boat, Jesus didn't turn and whisper into one of his disciples' ear. He had to shout because this is loud This is chaotic. This is disorganized. This is a throng of of humanity. This this is a lot of people in close quarters because a lot of people have heard of his healing and they are thronging about him. They are literally pressing against him, falling upon him in such a way that Jesus will say, I might need a way of escape to get out of here because we can all imagine a crowd such as this, what happens if... Perhaps the crowd pushes you over and you fall. That's a dangerous situation. In a crowd like this, somebody falls or somebody uh, loses their footing. And so Jesus says, for safety reasons, I, I need to have this boat to stand by. So these people are coming and we're told that they're coming because he's healed so many people and they've heard of what he's doing. So they're coming for the healing. They're not coming for the teaching. Now, 
We shouldn't be too sanctified about that. We shouldn't be too holier than thou about that and say, well, they should be coming to hear Jesus' teaching and not just to get healed. Instead, we should hear that with ears of grace and with ears of understanding to know in our hearts to say this, I know exactly how they feel. I mean, if, if you have a disease, if, if you have a deformity, if you have an injury, if you have an ailment, and you hear of someone healing everyone, everyone who comes to him, for you too, and for me too, that would be the most important thing to you. You too would come to Jesus and forefront in your mind would be that he would touch you and he would heal you too. And this is, this is where the crowd is. This is what is driving the crowd. This is precisely what Jesus wanted to avoid when he cleansed the leper and said, under no circumstances, tell people about this because Jesus knew this would happen. So people, thousands of people, thousands of people have heard and they have made sometimes short journeys, sometimes journeys of over 100 miles to come here in order to experience this healing from Jesus. But then we're told that Jesus says these words. Again, Mark is the only one who tells us this from verse 9. He said, to have this boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. So I want to take that phrase and I want to kind of pause on that phrase for just a few minutes and turn that phrase over a little bit and sort of explore that because at face value, what just happened here? Jesus, actually two times in the passage, Jesus is concerned for his safety. He removes himself from Capernaum because of a death threat. Now he calls for a boat in case he needs to escape for the crowd to the water. So, I don't know, is Jesus, where's Jesus' faith? Did Jesus just suddenly lose faith in the Father? Does, did Jesus all of a sudden take his eyes off of the Father and now he has his eyes on the crowd before him and he suddenly lost faith that his Father will not allow something to happen to him that is outside of his control? Did, does Jesus just need a boost of faith here? Does the Jesus in chapter 3... Does he perhaps need to learn something from the Jesus in chapter four who speaks to the storm and calms the storm and he himself says to the disciples, where was your faith? Did you forget I was in the boat? Does the chapter three Jesus need to learn from the chapter four Jesus? Or perhaps does the chapter three Jesus grow into the chapter four Jesus? What is up with Jesus and this apparent lack of trust of the father that he needs to arrange these human earthly means of safety? Actually, what this shows for us is, in a sense, a real precious nugget of teaching for us. Because what this shows us is that Jesus is the perfect law keeper. Jesus is the perfect law keeper. We remember back from chapter one, Jesus goes into the wilderness for his time of temptations. Now, Mark did not, did not narrate to us the specific temptations that came to Jesus. But the other Gospels did. Matthew and Luke did. And so we're familiar with those. We're familiar with the specific temptations that came to Jesus. And do you remember how he answered each of those with Scripture? And do you remember how he answered the temptation with these words, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, or you shall not put the Lord your God to the test? Remember that one? Does anybody remember what temptation Jesus was answering when he quoted that Scripture? It's in your notes, so you can cheat if you want to look down. But does anybody remember what Jesus was answering 
when he said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He was answering Satan's temptation to say, if you are the son of God, show us by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple. Because everybody knows that the father is not going to let you go splat on the ground. He's going to send his angels and you're not even going to dash your foot on the ground. So show us that you're the son of God by jumping off the temple and we'll all see God rescue you. And Jesus answers by saying, shut up. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what Jesus is rebuking Satan for there is the sin of presuming upon God or putting God to the test. So when he says you should not put the Lord your God to the test, he doesn't mean that God's not trustworthy. He doesn't mean that God's not faithful, that God cannot be relied upon to save Jesus should he need saving. What he means is, it is sinful to presume upon the power of God in such a way that causes you to take unnecessary risks, make unwise decisions, or to fail to be properly prepared for a situation. Jesus says it's sinful to neglect those things or to say, you know what? God's got my back. I'm going to do this anyway. I'm going to jump off the temple anyway. God's got my back. He's not going to let me hit the ground. Jesus says that is putting the Lord your God to the test by presuming upon his providence. And Jesus says that's a sin. And this is precisely what Jesus would have been doing in the face of this threat against his life in Capernaum. Should he have said, you know what? I'm immortal. I'm invincible until it's time for me to die on the cross. You ever hear Christians talk like that? We are invincible until it's time for, until it's God's time for us to die. Which there's truth in that. But had Jesus said, no, no, that I hear, and his disciples maybe came to him and said, Jesus, there's this credible threat against your life. And Jesus says, nah, just sort of blew it off. What he's saying is that would have presumed upon the power of God in such a way that was unnecessary. The same thing here with the crowd. This crowd, which is creating sort of this dangerous situation, Jesus, instead of presuming, you know, the Father's going to protect me. This crowd's not going to hurt me because I'm here to die on a cross on a certain day and it's not that day. Today's not that day. Instead of saying that, Jesus says, no, no, no. The wise, responsible thing for me to do is to not presume upon the Father, but instead to take the steps that are wise and necessary in case I need to follow them. Okay, so Jesus himself was the perfect truster in the Father. Nobody has ever trusted the Father like Jesus trusted his Father. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 23, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but instead he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He perfectly trusted in the providence of his father. He perfectly trusted in the timing of his father. He perfectly trusted in the sovereignty of his father. But he did not allow that to be occasion for him to sin against his father by presuming upon his father's interaction into his whatever situation he may face. So we see this in Jesus' example here. And we remember that, of course, Jesus is our example in all ways. His path is our path. And so as Jesus shows to us 
that there is a sinful way in which you can trust in the sovereignty of God in such a way that you sinfully presume upon the Father's activity, upon His preserving activity, so also is our path in life. And so for us to see this, take a look at the second page of your notes. And what I want to show, show us here now is just how the Bible paints for us a picture of how the Christian is to, on the one hand, absolutely trust in the sovereignty of God, absolutely trust in the providence of God, while at the same time taking proper responsibility in matters of faith and life here on earth. One of the places that we see this, for example, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing all the while that it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there we see both concepts put right together. We understand that this is God's work. This is God's sovereign work. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. I know that he will bring his work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What he started in me, he will bring it to completion. But I also, chapter 2, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. Or we see the same sort of thing in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. And this verse, take a look at just the interplay that we see here between what Paul calls the grace of God in him and working in him and Paul's earthly hard work that he's putting into the ministry work he's doing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So you see there the interplay between the sovereign grace of God, the enabling grace of God, and Paul himself saying, well, I don't just take that grace to mean I don't have to put in the effort. I don't just take that grace to mean, well, I can just sort of coast along to plant a church over in Philippi and coast over here to Thessalonica and plant a church there and coast on down to Corinth. Instead, I work harder than anybody, knowing the whole time it's not me, but it's the enabling grace of God. You see the interplay there. It's a beautiful interplay. Or we see it in places like Matthew 10, verse 16. We're told to be as wise as serpent or innocent as doves. One of the places that this is very clear is Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we see those two examples in which we're told about the, the wisdom of assessing a task before beginning it. And, and, and a king that's going to go out to battle or somebody that's going to build something and you assess the cost, you assess the role, you assess the task before setting out upon it. So we take all those pieces and we put them together and we feed them into our biblical doctrine that tells us of the absolute sovereignty of God, of the providence of God in our life, of the fact that God rules over every circumstance in our life. And putting those two things together, we are given a doctrine that tells us to trust emphatically and totally and completely in the protection and the sovereignty of God, yet do not sin against Him by presuming that you can do whatever you want to do or fail to do whatever you want to do and God's going to come to your rescue. So now let's flesh this out with some examples, just sort of bring this down to, to real life. And there's so many examples that we can think of. And as I'm going through a, a few of these, you be thinking about your life. And I promise you, I promise you that as we think through this, everyone in the room, if you, A, believe in a God that's powerful, you necessarily be have fallen prey to the sin. The sin of presuming that a powerful God will have your back and you don't necessarily have to 
dot all the I's, cross all the T's, do the hard work, do the preparing, whatever it may be, okay? So some examples that came to my mind, sort of maybe, first of all, some low-hanging fruit, some examples like what's becoming really popular today, especially among younger generations, the thrill-seeking, okay? You know what I'm talking about? People that are thrill-seekers, that are just, I don't know, adrenaline junkies, you might call it. And you see these videos of these people doing these crazy sort of death-defying things. Okay, if a believer were to do something of that nature, that is tempting God. That is tempting God to unneedfully or unnecessarily put your life at risk for a thrill is tempting the Lord your God. Or another example that I could think of most of us, probably better than half of us in the room, are old enough to remember before, and I see you nodding right there, before seatbelt laws. Remember before seatbelt laws? Now seatbelts have become such a part of our thinking that we just, you don't, you don't even think you put the seatbelt on. But do you remember before seatbelt laws? Do you remember when there was a time in which almost nobody wore them? You remember a time when it was sort of weird to be in a car with somebody put a seatbelt on? There's another example. There is a safety device right there that all you have to do is put around you. And for the Christian to say, I don't need that. My God's powerful. My God's not going to let me die in a car wreck unless it's my time to go. I'm not going until it's my time to go. You are sinning against the Lord your God by putting Him to the test unnecessarily. Okay, so those are some couple of easy examples, but let's get a little bit harder. Let's sort of dig down a little bit deeper because we can see this same root of the same sin can manifest itself in all kinds of ways in your life. What about the sin of, oh, I don't know, gluttony? And which you might say, the Christian might say, you know what? I'm not going to die until it's my time to die. So I can eat this whole greasy pizza all myself. I don't need to take care of my body. I don't need to exercise, right? Did you elbow him? Did you really elbow him right there? I don't need to exercise. I don't need to take care of my body because I'm not going to die until God's ready for me to die. That's putting the Lord your God to the test. Or here's another example. This is an example from my life I can share with you. Those of us who stand to do this on a weekly basis, we face a temptation. And that temptation is when you stand in that pulpit, you are God's voice box. And He will speak through you. And a great many people, stand in this moment, a great many people are standing in a pulpit like this, having not prepared, believing that as they step up there, God will say what He wants to say. And I don't need to put in the hard work of searching the Scriptures and, and studying in the Scriptures. In fact, we probably all know people, I know people for at least, who would say, in fact, that's sinful because God only speaks through the spontaneous, that all your preparation work is actually inhibiting the Spirit. So I know people that take it even further. But for certain, for one who is going to stand before God's people and teach or preach and to say, you know what, God's got this. this these are His words anyway. You are putting the Lord your God to the test. Now, I know this exam an example from my life, but you can take that and you can filter it into your life in all kinds of ways. 
You can right now think about your experiences and you can think about your life and you can ask yourself that question. Have I put God to the test? Have I neglected to care for something? Have I neglected to prepare? Have I neglected to take wise measures? Have I neglected these things? And have I done so because in my mind I'm thinking God's powerful, God's sovereign. He's not going to let that happen to me. Now, I want to hasten to add a very important qualifier to this. Because as you think about this, what you might be saying is, that sounds like God helps those who help themselves. Does it sound like that? It does kind of sound like that, doesn't it? Until we make certain that that's not what we're talking about. The Bible does not teach us that God helps those who help themselves, and that's not what Jesus is warning us against here. There's a crucial difference between God helps those who helps themselves and avoiding the sin of not putting the Lord your God to the test. And here's the difference. If your doctrine tells you that God helps those who helps themselves, you are in the driver's seat. That's the, that's the crucial difference. You are in the driver's seat. And if you believe that God helps those who helps themselves, then what that means is you just apply yourself to something and God's going to come in there and just give you what you need to do it. God will just come in there and fill up the gap. That's radically different than saying, my God is sovereign. My God has every moment of my life in his hands. I will not die until he's ready for me to die. Nothing will happen to me unless he wants it to happen. Yet, in faithfulness, I will not put him to the test unnecessarily. That's a radical, radically different thing than saying, oh, God helps those who helps themselves, so I'll do this and expect God to kind of come along and be my helper, so to speak. All right? So we all get that. Jesus is avoiding the sin. Of course, he's the sinless one. He's avoiding the sin of putting the Lord his God to the test by unnecessarily subjecting himself to danger from the crowd or danger in Capernaum, and he's taking wise measures against that. 